Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we're going to witness the Abbasid Caliphate, bereft of a strong leader, descend into chaos. The Turks could no longer commit to the pretense of Abbasid authority, leading them to quarrel amongst themselves over wealth and official control. Without a respected caliph at the top of the food chain, there was nobody who could check their destructive competition. And so it ravaged the system until everything came crumbling down. Episode 69 Al-Musta'in Puppet-in-Chief After building up to it for some time now, we will finally begin our coverage of the state's freefall in earnest. This period, known as the Anarchy in Samarra, extends for nine years. Nine whole years of things continuously going from bad to worse. All sorts of critical problems will beset the caliphate. Internal, external, military, fiscal, social, you name it. The supercharged pace of collapse will be difficult to keep up with, so we'll skip over a bunch of names and events that flash in the historical pan too briefly to merit a place in our narrative. Although Al-Musta'in's reign will be almost five years long, I think it's best we cover it chronologically instead of breaking things out thematically. It'll be a little disorienting, but the details of every upset are less necessary than capturing the feeling of getting slapped left and right by an angry god. We won't be able to give this caliph our usual intro either, as we know pretty much nothing about al-Musta'in before he was thrust into relevance. He doesn't even come up that often during his own reign, so this isn't a gap that's about to be filled. When he is mentioned, narrations paint him as an absentee leader who was only too happy to let the personalities around him do as they pleased, so he could get back to enjoying the pleasures afforded by his new line of work. This is just to say that there is no reason to focus on Al-Musta'in this time around. Instead, we'll spend his reign cataloging the disintegration of the realm he was nominally in charge of. The trouble started on day one. Al-Muntasir's sudden passing put the ruling junta on edge, and they scrambled to pick and promote his successor. Once again, the council was composed of the vizier, Ahmad ibn al-Khasib, Atamish, a Turk closely associated with the late caliph, and Big and Little Bugha, who were meant to speak for the soldiers. Al-Musta'in was chosen that same night, and a public pledging ceremony was arranged for the very next day. While this accelerated schedule goes unremarked upon in most histories, I see it as a clear sign of how exposed the Turks felt without a Abbasid fig leaf covering their naked power. They were eager to have other influential groups publicly confirm their choice. More Abbasids, local lords like the Tahirid governor of Baghdad, among others. Most importantly, they wanted everyone to witness the armies swear their fealty to the Abbasid they had picked. 
the morning started out as expected, with the caliph in Samarra, flanked by two columns of loyal troops, receiving pledges from a procession of elites and commoners alike. Suddenly, a cry rang out in the distance. A few military units loudly declared their support for the deposed al-Mu'taz and charged at the new caliph with their weapons drawn. Al-Tabari says these renegades totaled 50 horsemen and a thousand infantry, and that none of the soldiers involved in the mutiny were Turks. Things were touch and go for over three hours as the caliph's men struggled to extract al-Musta'in from harm's way. Samarra remained at war for the next three days. We hear that casualties were heavy on both sides, probably in the low thousands, and that the Turks came out on top. Obviously, there was going to be major fallout after such a fiasco. The first thing we hear about is the award of five months of salaries to all the troops who supported the caliph, a predictable reaction by an insecure government looking to shore up support. Then there was the reckoning with al-Mu'taz and al-Mu'ayyad. The two sons of al-Mutawakkil didn't have anything to do with the attempted mutiny, and they were spared despite calls by Turkish troops for their execution. Something still had to be done about them, though, especially al-Mu'taz, who only seven months earlier had led the Ummah in prayers during the last Friday of Ramadan. Since people remembered him as one of al-Mutawakkil's intended heirs, he had an inherent political potency that made him dangerous to any sitting caliph. Al-Musta'in suggested his cousins be bought off with a handsome sum, but his attendants dispossessed the two Abbasids of all their lands and riches instead. Thereafter, Al-Mu'taz and Al-Mu'ayyad were kept under house arrest in Samarra. Little Bugha, the general most implicated in their father's murder and most threatened by the possibility of their ever coming to power, took charge of their incarceration. Last time, I said that the caliph didn't make any changes. But that statement is only true in the sense that nothing seems to have been up to al-Musta'in. Changes were still made without his input. The one that shocked me the most was the rise of Atamish at the expense of Ahmad ibn al-Khasib. The erstwhile vizier was ejected from power with a speed that beggars belief, and we find various explanations on offer for his disgrace. A few narrations claim Ibn al-Khasib somehow protected al-Mu'taz and al-Mu'ayyad and blame him for the failed coup. Others say that Ibn al-Khasib had been outmaneuvered by the Turks from the very beginning, that he'd played no part in selecting the new caliph and therefore was already dispensable by this point. Whatever we choose to believe, Ibn al-Khasib and his family were arrested, dispossessed, then exiled to Crete. The biggest winner from the shake-up was Atamish. He and a couple others close to him, Shahik and Shujar, names you don't need to remember, dominated the court and treasury after this point. They instantly abused their stations and enriched themselves to truly gross proportions. There was a lot more to being in charge of the treasury than spending or hoarding money, however. Critically, deciding tax policy and managing the massive bureaucracy required for optimal revenue collection. Atamish and his posse had no appreciation for how complicated the job really was. But we have more changes and calamities to get through, 
will leave the long lecture on the difference between good and bad tax regimes until the end. Although Atamish was the primary beneficiary of Al-Musta'in's ascension, Little Bugha and Wasif got some crumbs as well. Wasif was on campaign against the Byzantines, but when he heard about Al-Muntasir's death and all the subsequent chaos, he captured a minor fort near Tarsus and promptly returned to Samarra so he could protect his interests in person. Big Bugha passed away a few months into Al-Musta'in's administration at the ripe old age of 80-something. Although his death cost the state one of its most capable generals, his son Musa was a worthy successor, and he took on his father's responsibilities and more. Musa ibn Bugha will come to play an important role in the caliphate's armies, so he is worth keeping an eye on. While we're on the subject of VIP deaths, we might as well note that the last good governor of Khurasan died that year as well. Tahir ibn Abdullah wasn't as great as his dad, but he held the province together, something his son will fail to do. These were the main occurrences of 862. I know it's only six months into al-Musta'in's reign, but let's take stock of the situation for a minute before we move on. The two biggest problems which cropped up were the conflicts within the military and the budding mismanagement of the treasury. Although the Turks now held total control over the state, the infighting between the caliphate's armies reveals the limits of their authority. It is important to note that it wasn't strictly everyone versus the Turks. Many non-Turks hadn't mutinied, and some even collaborated successfully with Wasif during his Byzantine campaign. Conversely, the Turks themselves were no longer united. While it may sound like a romantic notion, their duty towards the caliph was one of the most powerful forces binding these men together. The rank and file were obedient to their generals because they thought of them as their representatives at the court of the most powerful man alive, the Abbasid caliph. Now that they knew better, popular officers began to jockey for more influence, leading many troops to discard old loyalties and hitch their wagons to those rising stars instead. As a result, Wasif and Little Bugha could no longer speak for everyone. New names like Bayakbak, Belkajor, Simat Turki, and Al Mutawakkil's killer Baghir abruptly grew their followings and began to rival the old guard. The treasury was a more opaque institution, so its problems are difficult to discern this early on. The major financial moves described so far were the payout of five months of salaries to the troops and expropriations of fabulously wealthy men like Ibn al-Khasib and al-Mutawakkil's children. I wouldn't sneer at a five-month bonus, but al-Muntasir had given out ten months' worth of pay when he was elected. The fact that the new administration gave only half as much, then went on to dispossess some of its richest citizens, suggests a couple possibilities. Maybe the state was broke, or the new administrators were shamelessly rapacious. Though neither prospect was good news for the Ummah, it was the latter. The treasury could still endure another couple years of mismanagement before it ran dry. But for now, let's take a page from Atamish's book, 
and pretend that's never going to happen. Since he controlled the caliph's official seal, the vizier was the only one who could authorize disbursements from the treasury, which was how he embezzled his wealth. I'll give you an example. An officer would go to him and ask for 50,000 dirham to pay the troops at the start of the month. Atamish would preach poverty and say that he didn't have the liquidity for such a payment. At this point, the guy's options were either to offer a bribe for the release of the money, or accept a smaller sum and let the vizier take his cut. Either way, money had a way of making it into Atamish's pocket. In fact, we hear about four pockets, but we shouldn't burden ourselves with unnecessary names. The level of corruption was so absurdly high that it was only a few months before all this graft led to a crisis. Tired of having to plead for their wages and never getting their dues, the troops began to grumble about how there was never enough money to pay them while those at the top were living it up. Some narrations say that Wasif and little Bura, worried by Atimish's meteoric rise, fanned the flames of discontent and encouraged the soldiers against him. Finally, in June of 863, a few contingents besieged the caliph's palace where the vizier was staying. The guards were no match for these organized brigades, and so Atamish was trapped. He begged the caliph to save him, which is doubly comical considering both how uninterested and impotent al-Musta'in was. The caliph wasn't in the habit of taking sides, and he was okay with any result that kept him in luxury. Atamish's pleas got him nowhere, and a couple days later the troops burst in and killed him and Shujao, then ransacked the fabulous wealth of their estates. Al-Musta'in barely comes up during this debacle, which is weird because it took place in his own palace. After the violent siege was over, he thanked the troops for ridding him of the corrupt Atamish and rewarded Wasif, Little Bugha, Bagir, and a couple other names from the Turkish leadership. Now that the vizier was gone, a new treasurer was needed, and surprisingly a worthy candidate somehow got the role. He outlined a serious plan to right the state's fiscal ship, but it involved some big-boy moves, like auditing the wealth of the generals. Little Bugha expressed his opposition so clearly that not only did the new vizier resign, but he then moved to Baghdad out of concern for his safety. Afterwards, the position was only held by ineffectual yes-men, and the lack of a competent treasurer became an enduring issue for the caliphate. This was a really serious problem, but it was dwarfed by a different disaster later in the year, the first that wasn't totally self-inflicted by the caliphate in a long time. In the fall of 863, after the conclusion of the summer raid against their lands, the Byzantines managed to score a couple decisive wins against the Abbasids. These victories reshaped the balance of power along the border. But the issue wasn't that the Greeks won the day, it's that the Turks were nowhere to be found while the Ummah's two most popular Arab commanders fell valiantly in battle. Omar al-Aqtar, the hero of Malatya, and Ali ibn Yahya al-Armani both died fighting in late 863, and the reaction from the Ummah was unrestrained rage. 
it's clear that the Turks derived most of their legitimacy from the caliphate's perceived invincibility on the battlefield. The loss of one led to the loss of the other, and what followed was the Ummah's unequivocal rejection of their dominion over the state. There were dangerous riots in every major city as the people blamed their own government for allowing those noble warriors to die in vain. The popular take was that the caliphate's generals had abandoned their duties to squabble over wealth instead. So many rebellions broke out in greater Syria that although the Abbasids will hold on to the province for a few more years, this was effectively the year they lost it. A guy named Al-Qassas took control of Qansarin, the tribe of Lechem took over Jordan, and Homs rebelled so many times Musa ibn Bugha was eventually sent to torch it to the ground. The northwestern border with the Byzantines fractured after their invasion, and local commanders had to fill the gap left by the Abbasids. They fielded their own armies, and by the end of 863 Samarra was so worried about their popularity that the Armenians were granted more independence so they could act as a buffer between them and the caliphate. The upheaval wasn't limited to Syria, however, and the capital province was rocked by disorder as well. Baghdad was saved by its capable governor, who still had enough wealth to pay his troops a decent premium to keep them loyal. Samarra did not fare as well. Street clashes got so intense that Wasif and Little Bugha had to personally get involved in the fighting. The problems extended further east, too, and non-Turkish troops in Faris mutinied against their Turkish governor and killed him. That last example took place in 864, as the fallout from the loss of the admired Arab commanders lasted for several months. But the challenges of that year were of yet another kind. Now that the Abbasid reputation had ebbed to its lowest point in recent memory, we begin to hear about rebellions led in support of the only other clan whose name held purchase with the Ummah, the Hashemites. These are some of the longest narrations found in Al-Tabari during this period, but instead of spending time on the two rebellions we hear about in 864, we're going to cut to the chase. The one in Iraq happened first, but despite considerable support across the province, it never really stood a chance. It was simply too close to the official center of power. The Hashemite leading it started in Kufa, and he went around for a bit and reveled in the popular support he received. Everyone got really excited after he won his first battle against the Abbasids, and his supporters began referring to him as the Chosen One. Within another month or two, he attacked a larger army and died in battle. He was crucified, beheaded, gibbeted. The full, gruesome combo. The other Hashemite rebellion was a success though only thanks to some very favorable local politics. For all their help in holding the caliphate together, the Tahirids had been rewarded with control over Tabaristan and Daylam, the mountainous kingdoms along the southern coast of the Caspian Sea. Now these areas hated being under Khurasan's control, part of an ancient tension that predated the Arab invasion. You may recall that a few decades back, their monarch, Maziar, had refused to pay his taxes east, and forwarded them to Iraq instead. 
The Tahirids were also beginning to lose control of Khurasan around this point, and the combination of their weakness and local opposition presented the Hashemites with an in. Al-Hasan ibn Zayd, a descendant of the Prophet through his grandson Al-Hasan, founded the Zaydid dynasty in the region in 864. It lasted for a little over 60 years. I'll post a map up on the episode's page at thecaliphs.com. Okay, enough narrative for today. The Abbasid Caliphate effectively collapsed between June 862 and January 865, and we should reflect on its decline so far before moving on. A state's vital resources are armies, land, and wealth, and the Caliphate suffered irretrievable losses on all three fronts. Let's consider them one by one to round out our discussion for the day. We'll start with the armies. We find a lot of names used to describe the troops around this time. And while you don't need to remember them, going through them helps explain how the Ummah regarded their soldiers. The three main blanket terms were Al-Jund, Al-Shakiriya, and Al-Turk. The Jund were the troops that predated the Turks. So in Iraq they were the Abna, in Faris the original Khurasaniya, etc., the Shakiriya were any non-Turkish units raised after the advent of the Turks. These contingents were cast in the same mold as the Turks, so they trained in ethnically uniform companies, had their bases in Samarra, and their leaders were no strangers at court. The only group of the Shakiriya worth remembering were the Magariba, who hailed from North Africa. They were first put together in the days of Al-Muqtasim, and by now the Magariba numbered among the Caliphate's most effective armies. Finally, there were the Turks, a wide label that applied to many groups. Those from Ushrusana would sometimes be referred to as Ushrusaniya, even if at other times they're called Turks. Same goes for the Faragina, Khwarizmiya, Sughd, and others. Also, our sources at times use the term Turk to describe the Old Guard, and call the rank and file the Mawali. We find many narrations about tension between these groups, with the Mawali abandoning the Turks or choosing a new Turk to champion. The labels can be confusing, but sometimes the Mawali were the Turks and the Turks were the generals. The key takeaway here is that there was widespread discord, with every group trying for a bigger piece of the pie. So that's it for the military. But if disunity sounds abstract to you, the Caliphate's loss of land was all too real. The Byzantines took Malatya and plenty of nearby towns, expanding their border with Armenia and regaining relevance in the region. The Arab generals who managed to stem its advance did so independently of Turkish assistance, and many disappointed patriots from the Ummah volunteered their lives in defense of those areas. By losing the cooperation of the citizens of Syria, the Caliphate effectively lost the province as well, and its control was a technicality after this point. We didn't say anything about Egypt and the peninsula, although that's only because we rushed through things a little. Abbasid sovereignty over their provinces was tenuous at best. The wild parts of the desert had been lawless for quite some time now, 
and the governor of Egypt actually took a beat before accepting the new caliph. He conferred with Wasif's lieutenants in town, and they only accepted al-Musta'in after Atamish offered them a suitable bribe. Tabaristan was taken by Hashemites, and the Tahirids were quickly losing control of Khurasan. Realistically speaking, the power of the Abbasid Caliphate extended only as far as its unpopular armies could force themselves on the people, and they stayed in Iraq that whole period. Finally, we have to talk about money, because the treasury was running dangerously low by this point. We know this because in 865, Al-Musta'in complained about having to forego his own luxuries so he could afford the many unreasonable demands made by the Turks. Apparently, over 2,000 of their sons and 4,000 of their daughters had been added to the payroll since he took charge, proof that the court was little more than a rubber stamp by this point. Ruinous though it is, the profligate spending was only one side of this coin. We also need to consider what was going on with tax collection. So I've gone back and forth on whether to say anything about tax regimes. I hate to pretend like I'm an expert. And even reading about taxation in these general histories, it all sort of goes over my head. There were multiple taxes, the records are shoddy, the whole thing is very difficult to keep up with. So what you're about to hear is going to be vaguer and less precise than our usual discussion, but it should still help us assess the extent of the damage wrought by al-Musta'in's absentee reign. For the sake of simplicity, let's say that tax collection can be done in one of two ways, in cash or in kind. It's pretty hard to trump the convenience of cash, and there were indeed several kinds of taxes on wealth. But the caliphate's agrarian base meant that most of its taxable production was agricultural. It seems like the Abbasids used different approaches for turning that wheat and barley, by far the two most popular grains, into gold. Fast forward to Harun al-Rashid, who had an enlightened administrator in charge of taxation. He convinced the caliph to adopt sharecropping more widely, and to limit the use of tax farming, which was rife with abuse. Sharecropping is when the state allows folks to farm its lands in return for a split of the proceeds. The benefits of sharecropping lay mainly in the fact that the state and farmer shared the risk. When there was a bountiful harvest, the state got lots of food, which prevented the market from being flooded and kept prices stable. In a bad year, farmers could still survive on what little food they grew because they didn't have to pay a predetermined sum of money come hell or high water. This system worked well for the Abbasids. The fact that the state got paid in crops made growing the caliphate's agricultural output one of its most important objectives. By the time of al-Ma'mun's reign, the government had added more regulations to encourage investment in infrastructure. For example, if you grew food along the banks of a river, you had to pay half your output in taxes. If you dug your own canal off that river, irrigating previously unused soil, you only paid 40%. If, on top of that, you built a water wheel and further expanded the usable area, your rate dropped to 
it was a great setup that strengthened the state's economy and food security year on year. To properly run this operation, however, a whole slew of educated and trustworthy administrators native to different corners of the caliphate was required. These men had to then be organized into an independent bureaucracy with several additional layers of communication, oversight, and management. The Baramika, Ibn Zayyat, and Ubaidullah ibn Yahya ibn Khaqan had all become indispensable to the state because they had mastered this complex apparatus of revenue collection. That's what enabled them to pull out millions of dirhams at the drop of a hat and finance massive projects with ease. Their effortless administration gave the impression that the caliph always had ready access to infinite wealth, which in turn encouraged economic activity and reinforced social stability. So, if sharecropping was the good system, why was it abandoned and what was the alternative? I think you can already discern some of the reasons the tax regime wasn't a good fit for the Turks. They lacked the necessary skills, nobody wanted to work with them, and their favored method of getting the ball rolling was twisting a few arms. For a military temperament like theirs, tax farming presented a much more appealing option. Tax farming is when the state sells the right to collect taxes for a sum. So instead of running a complicated tax operation to net 10 million in Basra, the court would sell the rights to some rich guy for 8 or 9 million. This transactional setup obviated the need for a bureaucracy. And best of all, it generated gold instead of crops, which was what the Turks were really after. The consequences of this shift are captured in a book written by Robert Mixey Adams in 1981, titled Heartland of Cities, Surveys of Ancient Settlement and Land Use on the Central Floodplain of the Euphrates. His study goes through an impressive array of archaeological and alluvial evidence to chart mankind's efforts of growing food in the cradle of civilization. It says, quote, Conceding a thicket of problems that include copyists' errors and the difficulties of distinguishing normative from descriptive lists of receipts, there was a decline by about half in gross imperial revenues between the time of Harun al-Rashid and 920. The Sawad, the fertile black soil of Iraq, which had supplied about 100 million dirhams at the outset, was producing less than 20 million at the end of it. Moreover, the losses increased in intensity, with most occurring between 860 and 915. In many strategic and formerly prosperous jurisdictions, losses of 90% or more were recorded in this period of less than a single human lifespan. The period he's referring to opens with the anarchy in Samarra. The turn towards tax farming did irreversible damage to the agricultural base which underpinned Iraqi prosperity. Those buying the rights to a certain area were ruthless in maximizing the return on their investment, and their abuse of laborers led many into destitution. Farmers abandoned their lands and flocked to the cities instead, putting more pressure on already strained urban centers. Worse still, the infrastructure necessary for cultivation, the canals, ditches, water wheels, 
all fell into disrepair, as there were no longer any incentives to invest. Everyone was in it for the short term now. This was without a doubt the most damaging outcome of Al-Musta'in's disastrous reign. He's not done yet, though. In fact, all these insurmountable problems we mentioned today will be overshadowed by the calamity which hit the Ummah in early 865. The anarchy was unrelenting, and its ferocity only grew more intense with time, accelerating the Ummah into a dark abyss. Al-Musta'in's role in this collapse is a matter of perspective, but what's clear is that he was pushed around by pretty much everyone. I don't know whether that was out of negligence or self-preservation, and I'm not sure it really matters. We've done enough for today. Let's cover the rest of his destructive reign next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. (laughs) 